Hello, I'm Mark Price, and welcome to my podcast, Meet the Business Author. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that businesses and individuals work, particularly how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can transform an organisation. I'm building a platform at Engaging.Works with the world's biggest business library, where anyone can come and search for information and guidance on their working life. In this series, I'll be speaking with a number of prominent business authors whose books are available to buy on the business library. I'll be speaking to them about their book, what lessons we can take from them, and what they think about the future of working life and business. In this episode of Meet the Business author, the brilliant Elsbeth Johnson, who is the MD of System Shift, but also the author of Step Up, Step Back. Now, Dr. Elsbeth Johnson is an expert in leadership and change uh, and research into what leaders need to do to drive change. Elsbeth, in her career, has been an investment banker, a government advisor for Tony Blair, uh, a strategy director for a large financial institutions, and she's now a senior lecturer and teaches for many prestigious institutions. And she advises business. Elsbeth, welcome to the Meet the Business Author podcast. Could you just start by talking a little about your career and the lessons that you learned in your career that led you to write your book? Thanks, Mark. Well, first of all, let me say it's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, I guess there were two things that I took away from, you know, frankly, an almost 15 year career before I quit, if you like, the commercial world and went back to academia. The first lesson I think that, um, I, I suppose I, I realized slightly frighteningly almost every quarter as a sell-side equity analyst um, was that organizations, businesses, having promised X would very often deliver Y. And, uh, and that there was a difference between X and Y and Y was often less than X. And not only did they not seem to be particularly good at explaining the variance between X and Y, but they didn't seem to get any better at that explanation over time. And I think that was, I mean, obviously, uh, as an investor, um, that makes you have a sense of risk that is probably heightened for that particular organization. But I think that was also just interesting to me as to why people didn't understand their businesses um, in, in quite the way that possibly uh, an outsider would expect them to do. So that, I think that was the first thing. And then the second thing was having spent six, nearly seven years in a corporate strategy role, um, actually in Asia, um, I realized just how hard change is. Um, I mean, there's a famous adage, which actually is, is mythical. There's, there's actually no empirical evidence to, to back this up, that quote unquote, 70% of strategic change efforts fail. Um, it's much quoted, but not much proven. But, but I think what is certainly true is that the majority of change efforts are probably harder than they need to be. And again, I found that interesting because now I was, if you like, on the inside of an organization trying to affect change um, and implement strategy. Why was it so hard? And so I think those two things really drove me to be interested in this phenomena of what makes strategic change work in certain circumstances and not in others. And, and I suspect that I thought that maybe part of that answer was when leaders have a, have a deeper, un, un, and, and the people who work in a business have a deeper understanding of the dynamics of that business, 
um, then then maybe that makes it easier. And actually, that's exactly what my empirical research was was, was five years later was suggesting. And and Elspeth, you also spent a, a, a good uh, deal of time in government, advising government. Uh, you worked for Tony Blair's government. Uh, you worked in Number Ten in the policy unit as part of that time. Were there any reflections from there that that um, helped you in in uh, ordering your thoughts for the board? I don't think so. I, I think partly might that was just because. Well, first of all, it was only a, it was a three year stint in in the first Blair government. But I think also, to be honest, I was probably so young at that stage that I I was pretty pretty hard pressed just to get the job done. Um, I, I think reflection comes probably later in your career. So I think it's a good question in the sense that I think it's fair to say that I probably took some reflections, albeit years later, from that time. Um, because actually, to some extent, I think change in the public sector is even harder than the private sector. And I think the reason for that is very often fundamental change in any setup requires investment. It requires the funding of a J-curve. Um, it requires people to make, um, to, to invest in short-term pain for long-term gain is another way to say that, to express the J-curve concept. Um, private organizations um, have to, obviously they have bosses too. They have to go to their investors and justify that. But I think that's a hard. I think that's that's slightly easier than the concept in public, in the public sector, where governments I, I think are pretty bad at long-term investment, and um, you know are, are constantly looking at the electoral timetable to think, well, am I going to get the return on that investment? So I think it's actually harder in the public sector, but I don't think the lessons are any are, are substantively different. And and Elspeth, I I spent some time uh, in government uh, as, a, as a Minister of Trade, uh, having spent my entire career in business. And I'm quite often asked, what are the differences between business and government? Or why right. can't government be more like business? What, what would your answer to that question be, given your experience? Well, I, I mean, I think, I think there's probably the first, a, a prior question, which is, ought it to be more like business? I, th I think what motivates that question is, why, why do things in the public sector seem to take um, quite a long time? Why is it bureaucratic? Um, I, I mean, to be blunt, I think, if, I think if many businesses were on the front page of the Daily Mail, their, their slowness and bureaucracy would also be evident. I, I mean, I think part of it is the, the, the level of, of scrutiny. I mean, right now, I suspect there ought to be more scrutiny. <clears throat> but um, so, so I, I, I'm not sure that it, that it is so different. Um, but as I say, I do think there's there's probably two things that that in my experience make it different. The the first is that that, that idea that the J curve is hard to justify because relative to the electoral timetable, the return on an investment is probably not going to be reaped by the same administration. Now, I guess you could argue that given the average duration of a CEO is just over three years, uh, maybe it's similar, but. But not really, because I think there's a legacy point. When, when one CEO leaves and another takes over, they're not trying to completely trash the previous administration. So, so I think that is the first reason that it, it is an exaggerated form of hard. Um, I think the other thing is there is a fundamental gap, if you will, between ministers and the civil service. And so in an organization, you have leaders who typically are in charge collectively of appointing the 
the managers, the, 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 the staff of the organization. And that's just not true in certainly the British system. Now, um, I, I'm not arguing for, a, for political appointments in the civil service. That, that's not the point I'm making. I'm just saying that when you have a gap between, whether ideologically or in terms of ability, between managers, between managers and leaders, that's, that's inherently problematic in any organization. And that's what we have in the civil service. And so with all of that knowledge that you'd built up, amazing experience um, as an investment, uh, investment banker in the government, and then in a very large corporate role, um, what was it that decided you to write the book? Well, I mean, it, it really wasn't a decision to write the book. It was a decision to go back to academia. So, um, so the book started as a PhD. The, the book, the, the research that, which, which was then repurposed into the book um, was my doctoral research. So, so this book almost went through three stages. It, it started off as doctoral research and, and therefore, you know, A, takes a while, B, is, is pretty involved because it has to pass um, PhD committee every year. It has to go through and, and be grounded in that academic rigor. Um, having done the PhD and that had gone well and I'd enjoyed it, I then started talking about the research and what it told us about how to lead change with clients and organizations that I was starting to work with. So there was a kind of socialization of that. Um, that didn't obviously change the research, um, but it certainly, I think, helped me explain it in a way that was less academic and more practical. And it was really during that process that I thought, you know what, this could become a book. And then again, there was that third and final step where academic research, which is written in a certain way, was then I, I repurposed that for, for the book. And, and that, was a, that was an interesting journey. I mean, uh, writing in an academic way is very, very different from writing a book, even one with lots of endnotes, which mine has. Um, so, so that was a really interesting process. And, and, you know, I was hugely helped along that journey by having, first of all, a great agent who kind of knew, understood that, if you like, that translation. Um, and, then, and then some great editors with whom I worked. So, so, so there's almost three um, there's almost three stages to the book, um, but but that, I mean back to your original question, which is why why did I leave kind of corporate life or full or a full time job in corporate life, as it were, because it still feels like I work in corporate life, um, uh, to go back to to be a full time academic for for at least the first three years of of the research. I mean, I guess I I I'd always been interested in in um, in really understanding stuff and 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 i think that's for me the motivation of of being an academic um i think the other thing the opportunity cost of of working in a, in a corporate full-time I, I felt was starting to get quite high frankly what i mean by that is that they own your ip they own your ideas you have a really good idea at work when you're taking the the queen's shilling and and the queen owns it so so um so i had got to a stage where i thought i was um having what I thought were interesting ideas and I wanted to own them and do something with them myself rather than just it within the confines of one particular organization. And lots of our listeners um, comment on the fact that they'd like to write a book or they feel they have a book in them. Can you just talk to us a little about the actual process of writing the book? Did you, 
Did you write in the morning? How many words did you do? How long did it take? Um, was it an iterative process? Just talk a little about the writing um, step up, step back. Well, I, I think the first thing to say is mine was probably a little bit of an idiosyncratic process just because all of the research had been done by the time I started to type anything. Um, and I suspect, I mean, I'm now working on my second book and, and where the research is not done and I'm starting to think about the book and the research much more iteratively. And so I suspect what, what the the process I'm about to describe for you, Mark, is a bit weird relative to most people who write a book, but here was mine. So the research is done, as I say, it, it exists in a very academic 100,000 word PhD format. I'd then taken it out into the quote unquote real world and socialized it and started using it with clients. And that had told me some stuff about how to position it, how to frame it, very different words to be used. Then I think that for me, the most important thing was I, I got an agent who I think is terrific. I think getting an agent is probably a very good idea, particularly for a first book, if, you, if you're looking to get a reasonably serious publisher. Um, by the way, a lot of people self-publish these days, so there's lots of options out there, way more than probably ever. Um, but I got an agent who um, helped me write a pretty detailed book proposal. And by detailed, I meant I mean like 50 pages, a couple of sample chapters. And then he shopped it out to potential publishers. Three offers later, I was then in a position where my, the, the publisher that I actually went with, um, who actually wasn't the one that offered me the most money, but was the one who, who essentially bought the book I wanted to write. And they knew what that book was like because my proposal had been re reasonably detailed. And so by the time I sat down to actually start typing something, um, I, I had a very, very clear idea of the book I was going to write, how it was structured, how it would be framed, because frankly, I was expanding the book proposal that someone had bought. So I think in that respect, I was very, that, that sequence was, was very fortunate and actually meant that the book itself, I wrote in about five months. So the, the book writing part of it wasn't very long, but, but if you like, I, I mean, I essentially started it a decade ago when I started the, the, the PhD research, right? So it, it's, it's, um, it's not quite as quick and, and easy as, as, um, as the, the duration of the final stage implies. Um, I, I did get into a routine. I think routine's actually really important. We know this in organizations that when, when, if you want something to actually happen and get embedded, then putting some routines around it and to, to become habitual about how you do the work is the easiest way to do it. And so my habit, my routine was I would um, edit in the morning. I would edit essentially the, the stuff I'd written the previous day. Now, let me just say, I think self-editing is always a bit of a dubious, um, it's not quite an oxymoron, but I think it is hard. Um, killing your own darlings, I think is hard. And so, um, but, but I would try and, and improve my own work and edit my own work in the morning. And then by about kind of three o'clock, um, I'm very much a kind of late afternoon, evening person in terms of thinking and writing, I would get into writing again. And, and that was my, if you like, the cadence of, of an average day. Um, I think that said, it, it, going back to that editing process, I mean, when I got my editors involved, 
um, and, and they were people. So I, I mean, obviously I had helped my publisher as Bloomsbury. Um, I had some editorial input from Bloomsbury, but actually I had a couple of people outside um, who, who were a terrific help to me as editors. Um, one is a close friend of mine who I just think is a great writer. I think he's great at structuring. Um, and the other was my former editor at Harvard Business Review. Um, and so when I, I mean, obviously your fantasy is that you give your firstborn child over into the hands of these editors and they come back and say, oh, well, she's beautiful and nothing needs to change. And, but once you've got over the, the kind of, you know, four second disappointment that actually something, you know, actually quite a lot needs to change um, and you start going through the red pen comments, what you realise is that, that writing and producing a book really is a collaborative effort. I mean, I, I, it, it sounds trite, but you know, when, when smart people who are good at editing get their hands on your, on your writing, it, it really does make it better. And so um, I actually, I didn't find that process particularly painful just because it was so evident to me that the editorial input was helping making it better in a way that I couldn't have done. I mean, I, I, I say in the acknowledgements of the book that, that my, one of my editors in particular helped me get out of my own way linguistically. So he would literally sit me down and go, what are you actually trying to say in these first two pages in this chapter? And I would then verbalize that um, and he, uh, in about three sentences and, and he'd be like, okay, well, let's just write that down then. Um, and, and I know it sounds, you know, trite and, and, and simple, but it, it is actually hard sometimes to get out of your own way linguistically, just to use language that communicates what you actually want to say. And particularly, Elspeth, if you've come from an academic background, yeah, uh, or if you've come from a, a, a strong corporate background where you're used to particular phrases and terminologies. But I think the great credit to you and to your editors is that your book does read really practically. And the title, in effect, gives away what you're you're trying to convey: step up and step back. So, do you, would you just like to to say to listeners what the book is helping leaders and organisations to do in terms of getting lasting change? Yeah. So, so having described the problem, which is change is harder than it needs to be, but then there's almost a secondary problem, which is a lot of leaders complain particularly 12 or, th or 18 months into a change that they seem to be doing a lot of it themselves they seem to be making a lot of the decisions um, managers are having to come to them for ongoing help or support or cover and so the book is an attempt to solve both of those problems so as you say the title kind of gives it away the philosophy or the advice is that leaders first of all in the early stages of a change need to step up and do more than they typically might in specific ways at specific times. Um, and and what the two things that they need to do in that first year of the change is first of all, provide clarity. And I know that sounds easy to do, but in specific ways, particularly around explaining the outcomes of the change, um, talking about a large fundamental delta over a longer period of time rather than allowing people to think that this change might be simply cosmetic and therefore possible thanks to a few quick wins. If we're talking about strategic change, we're talking about something much deeper than that. So having built clarity in the first couple of months, leaders then need to um, build alignment. They need to align the business around the change they've asked for. And again, they do that in specific ways. 
Now, now that stepping up activities, clarity and alignment, um, is, is probably, certainly in my experience, more involved than an awful lot of leaders are in the first year of the change. And, and I, by that, I don't imply that I think leaders are you know, lazy in, in the first year of the change, typically, but I do think they need to focus on specific things and frankly, lean into some of the boring, nerdier aspects of that change, like specifying outcomes rather than um, rolling their sleeves up and, and de determining activities. That, that's not their job. The demarcation of labor here is leaders specifying outcomes, managers deciding what activities will deliver those outcomes. So if that's the first year, leaders need to step up and do more in that, that initial stage of the change than they typically do. Then leaders need to, and indeed really have to, step back and do probably less than they typically do from year two onwards. And so what I mean by that is really leaders very often from year two or three are still tinkering with the change. They're possibly changing their minds. They're possibly being inconsistent on the strategy or the messaging around the change. They're possibly undoing some of the structural investment that they made early on, and they really can't be doing any of that. So the critical activities for stepping back um, are that they allow managers to focus by giving them time and space and slack, um, but also that leaders are consistent. So this means no new strategies or messaging. Um, and it also means that they, they've maintained all of the changes they've made. Now, I, I guess to that, I would add two things. The first thing is that stepping back does not mean stepping out. So while leaders need to step back, I get out of the way. Don't change your mind. Don't be seduced by some shiny new idea that you've just discovered in an airport bookshop. Uh, which you think you can feed into the system. Trust me, that's the last thing the system needs. The change has started to take effect and you need to let it and let your managers do the work of that change because it is a long-term endeavor. But it doesn't mean stepping out. So you're still there to reinforce all of that messaging, to talk about how and why the strategy is important, to keep up with all of the initial investments or changing to resource, changes to resources that you've made in the first year. So that's the first thing. Stepping back doesn't mean stepping out. The second thing I think that, that leaders often need to get their head around is that for them, this later stages of the change might actually be quite boring. A lot of leaders have, are, are in a leadership position. They've been promoted to that level in their organization because they're very good at getting stuff done. They're very good at making decisions, delivering KPIs on time, on budget. What they now need to do is let go of all of that expertise because that's now their manager's job. Um, you know, they're, they're frankly paid too much to be at that level. Um, and so they, they need to step back to let managers really step up and have a really, it's, it's the manager's turn to have a really interesting time in, in those later years of the change. And so very often I'm coaching leaders to be prepared to be bored. Um, and actually, in that respect, January is always my busiest month because leaders have come back from, you know, a couple of weeks off, maybe traveled, maybe bought a book in a business um, section of an airport and or, you know, caught up on their reading. Um, and they've got some contenders 
shiny new ideas that they've picked up that they would like to feed into the organization. And that's probably the worst thing that you can do. Um, if, if, the, if the original strategy is still the best one, and obviously you, you need to keep a watching brief on that, right? So of course there can be stuff that's going on outside the window. Um, customers can change their preferences. Competitors can respond to your positioning. Uh, regulators can change the rules by which your business is governed. But assuming you're paying attention to the, the kind of external environment and there's no looming threats or opportunities from that environment, then stick to the, as Peterson Water once said, stick to the knitting. Great. Well, I think from that, um, listeners will get a very clear idea of um, the very practical advice that you can offer to leaders and organizations uh, to make things work. If, if there was one takeout from the book, that you would want people to get, uh, Elspeth, what, what would it be? I think for me, the, 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 main, the main message, particularly for leaders, is that they probably need to redefine what they, what they mean or they think of as the work of leadership. And so, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things I think that's very important, um, and actually it, it may well be salient in, in these times, is that, we we have i think particularly in the west although with my asian clients i see it looming as a problem as well we have a very almost hollywood version of how we conceive of leadership um leaders have to be charismatic they have to be action oriented they have to you know change is fast paced and dramatic and exciting and actually, it's exactly that concept of leadership that, that really gets us into trouble when what we're talking about is leading long-term strategic change over a three, four, five-year period. Because actually, a lot of the time, it's not remotely exciting or fast-paced. It's hard work. It's grind. It's not glamorous. It's, it's quite nerdy. And actually, for leaders to... Um, not sweat the detail in terms of the activities but they do have to sweat the detail on what will this change deliver what are the key outcomes and by when and they then have to be very clear about those things and also lead on those things by which i mean role modeling them talking about them agitating for them so uh, in an awful lot of ways i think it's you know leaders are not most leaders certainly that I know aren't lazy, but I do think a lot of the time they're doing the wrong work. Great. And um, a final question for you, if I can, Elspeth. We, we, um, we find ourselves um, having this conversation in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And in the UK at the moment, we're all uh, locked in our homes. We have been for four weeks now. What advice would you be giving to leaders now about what they should be doing? And if they were thinking about strategic change, how should they be thinking about it in the light of COVID-19? Well, I, I'm not sure that um, a, a crisis is the time to necessarily be scoping a piece of strategic change. Um, you probably need a little bit more st fundamental stability to, to do that. But I, but I definitely think that some of the lessons from the research that on which Step Up, Step Back is based are, are salient. Um, and I guess I would say two things. I would say, first of all, that combination of charisma and, um, and 
nerdiness. I mean, in the book, I call it, you have to be both a rock star and a nerd. Um, you have to be um, over enough of the detail, even if you're not doing it, because it's, it's by working up from the detail that you end up with, um, you know, the, the charismatic slogan that sells the, the change or that sells the, the current policy. Um, I suspect at the moment, it, I mean, it's hard for leaders right now because it, it probably, it's overwhelming. Um, th there's also, I think, you know, an awful lot of different quote unquote experts having their opinion. Um, uh, you know, for every four scientists, there'll probably be five opinions. So um, if, if I, I think right now what leaders need to do is, is recognize that charisma is not going to be enough to get you over the line on managing in a crisis. And I think when we look around the world at leaders who have, um, have done a very good job um, uh, in, in managing this crisis, as I say, to the extent that's not an oxymoron, um, rather than just reacting to it, um, I think they are leaders who have, they have charisma to some extent, but that's not all they have. They have deep substance on um, understanding and interrogating the science um, rather than simply taking it at face value. So I think that's the first thing I would say. You need that combination of the rock star and the nerd. Um, and by the way, I, I don't think that's just um, a combination that only women have. I, I, I see a lot of noise at the moment about, you know, female leaders have led better than male leaders in this, at this time. I, I'm not sure that's the, that's the distinction I would make. I think it's those who combine that charisma and the empathy um, with, um, with a detailed um, understanding and interrogation of the science. And as I say, I think there's quite a few names that would be popping into most people's heads when we think about that style of leadership. I think the other thing that, that Step Up, Step Back would, would suggest for this time is you can't just get away with leading. You have to actually put your money where your mouth is. You have to make structural change. You have to make structural investments. Um, and again, I think the, the idea, which I talk about in the book, of having um, organizational slack. Now, that's a horrible academic term for basically spare capacity in the system. Um, when you run the sys any system hot, in other words, that what you're what you're going for is efficiency rather than long-term effectiveness. Um, neoliberal economics will tell us that you should strip away all of the slack because, in that philosophy, slack equals waste. Now, uh, we have known as organisational scientists rather than econ economists for a long time that slack is required when an organisation is trying to learn, is trying to be innovative, in other words, is trying to change. What I think we're seeing now in this time of COVID-19 is that systems, whether they're health systems or welfare systems or, or indeed economies uh, or organisations, when they have no slack, um, they are inherently more fragile. So if, if you want a more resilient system, you have to get used to having a bit of slack. And by slack, what I mean is um, spare capacity, um, spare time, so that you're not flat out just to deliver the target or, um, uh, or you know, treat the number of patients that you have every day. You've got a little bit of time at an individual level to stand back, reflect and learn. And the organization then has spare capacity to institutionalize that learning so it can get better. 
And, and almost this brings us back, Mark, to that point I made right at the start when, when as an equity analyst, I couldn't understand why people um, not only delivered Y when they had promised X, but didn't seem to get better in the reduction of variance over time. That's largely because they were running hot. They, they weren't building into the system the capacity which enables the system, rather than just the individuals within it, to properly learn and then to institutionalize that learning. Great. And um, if, um, if you think about COVID and its impact that it's having on us all now, there are some people that say that COVID will change everything in the way that we work, whereas others make the case that we'll all get back to doing exactly what we did uh, in the same way. Right. Say, what, what's, what's your view? How do you think COVID will change the world of business? Well, I think... I think the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, I, I lived in Hong Kong during the, the what I now call SARS-1 because there's a sequel um, and we're in it. Um, and, and actually, I think uh, although in 2003, 2004, the world was much, much less technologically enabled, um, we went pretty much back to the old world. I think that will be, I think that will be less this time partly because we have the technology to do exactly what you and i are doing right now which is sit on a zoom call um you know we don't have to be in a studio to record this podcast so i think partly technology will mean that we consider um you know hopefully well query when this is over um but hopefully we'll have options to go back to normal uh, or rather to go back to what it was i, I suspect there's some people who, um, and certainly some businesses, who will realize that almost having been forced to do stuff, to do more stuff virtually, and um, that actually there is cost saving there, there's ease. Um, you know, I think it will probably make us a little bit more tolerant of people working from home more, because actually a lot of the time the technology does really work. Equally though, I think this is also showing us as human beings what we miss when we're not with other human beings physically. Human beings are social animals um, and we've evolved to um, hang out with each other, go for coffee, be face to face. Um, and so even if that face to face is a little bit more distant socially than, than it has been, I think we'll which is why I say I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. I think we'll we have an instinct which is let's let's physically meet um, to the extent that we can. So I suspect that I mean I think business will change because I think this is this is showing business what it can do with technology and 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 more virtual sessions. For example, all of my classes at MIT um, over the summer will be taught virtually. Um, uh, now, I think that will teach us two things. I will think I think that will teach us that that is actually possible. But I also think that both faculty and students will miss out on a lot of the, the social interaction of being on campus. And I think people will miss that and therefore they'll want to do that when whenever they have the chance to. So I think it's somewhere in the middle. Elspeth, and for all of you um, listening, you can buy Elspeth's book, Step Up, Step Back, in the Engaging Works Business Library and in all other good bookshops. Elspeth, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening. 
For more in this series, please go to engaging.works where you can buy the book and browse over 80,000 other business titles. See you again next time. Thank you.